We've talked about the difference between consciousness, what I've been calling the black lab mind, which is the simple act of knowing different sense objects. And for us, that also includes the mind as the sixth sense, including objects of mind. So the difference between consciousness and awareness, when we recognize with mindfulness that we are knowing, we recognize the quality of awareness within ourselves. And with mindfulness or awareness, which we're using synonymously here, we're no longer lost in or carried away by all the stories in our minds. That internal narration that continually goes on creating the sense of self. We're mindful enough to see and to observe what's going on both within us and in the world around us. Now, as the momentum of awareness gets stronger, as it builds, and this momentum builds not through a forced effort, it builds simply through a continuity of attention. Simply by practicing the continuity of mindfulness, it's the continuity which develops the momentum, so that at a certain point, the mindfulness is rolling along by itself. That factor of mind has become so strengthened that it's going along without any undue effort on our parts. When the mindfulness, when the momentum of mindfulness is strong, it then becomes, as I've mentioned before, the platform for wisdom. So it's not enough to simply be aware, although it's necessary. We need to use the awareness to then see and investigate and learn from what we're being mindful of. In the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, which as you know, is called the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, there is a refrain in the sutta that is repeated after each set of instructions. So after each set of meditative instructions, this refrain is repeated. And in the refrain, the Buddha is telling us very directly how to investigate. He's pointing to the wisdom that actually liberates our minds, liberates our hearts. Now this refrain occurs about 13 different times in the sutta, the same refrain. I think the Buddha is trying to tell us something. You know, mostly when we read the repetitions, you know, often our mind just glazes over, oh, I've read that before. In this case, I think it's repeated over and over again because it's a very direct instruction to us. He's saying whether we're investigating the body or feelings or the mind and mental objects or those categories of experience, the dhammas, the refrain is the same. The Buddha is telling us how to investigate. So what he says, after each set of instructions, he says, Abide contemplating the arising, the passing, 
and both the arising and passing away of each object of awareness. So whatever it is that arises in the mind, in the body, internally, externally, the investigation of the wisdom mind is to see the arising, the passing, and both the arising and passing of that experience. There was a great Burmese meditation master and scholar who lived in the beginning of the 1900s. His name was Lady Sayadaw. That's L-E-D-I. And he said that not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. Are we getting it? <laughs> I mean, the Buddha said it 13 times in the sutta. You know, this great master. Not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance, while seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. The Buddha emphasized this same point in many different ways. At one point he was talking about different kinds of meritorious action, different kinds of wholesome action. And of course, as we know, generosity is the first of the paramis, the perfections. And the Buddha said that an act of generosity is purified in three ways. It's purified by the wholesomeness of the giver, the wholesomeness of the gift, and the wholesomeness of the receiver. So all of that contributes to the power of the gift. He said that more powerful, more meritorious than even giving a gift to the Buddha himself and the whole order of enlightened monks, that's a lot of purified beings. So there's a lot going into the merit of that action. More meritorious than that is one moment of the mind being absorbed in loving kindness. Tremendous power when the mind really is fulfilled in metta, in loving kindness, and radiating that quality. And he said many times more powerful than that moment of loving kindness is the merit of seeing clearly the arising and passing away of phenomena. So this is not an insignificant thing that we're undertaking. You know, the investigation with wisdom <coughs> of every aspect of our experience, seeing the arising and passing away, has tremendous power. Why? What is it that's so powerful about this insight? Again, the Buddha laid it out. He said bhikkhus. And when he says bhikkhus, he's really talking to everyone walking on the path. It's all of us. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensual lust. It eliminates all ignorance and uproots the conceit, I am. That I am sense. That's quite a lot. You know, that's no small accomplishment 
It eliminates all sensual lust. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots the conceit I am. Developing and cultivating the perception of impermanence. At one time, Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant, uh, was walking with the Buddha and speaking to him, and he was recounting all the marvelous qualities of the Buddha, of which there are many. And so Ananda was recounting all of his great perfections of love and compassion and concentration and resoluteness and truthfulness and morality and generosity. So Ananda was going on and on and on. And finally the Buddha responded to him and he said, that being so, Ananda, this whole long list of great qualities, remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. Remember this too as a wonderful and marvelous quality. For the Tathagata, feelings are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, are present, and as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise and are present and disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Tathagata. So you can feel good about every time (laughs) you're seeing the arising and passing of a thought, of a feeling, of a sensation, of a sound. And the Buddha is saying this is a wonderful and marvelous quality of his awakening. You know, and we can share in that in every moment of mindfulness accompanied by wisdom. So again, the question can arise, why is it such a marvelous quality? What is the Buddha pointing us to with all of this uh, emphasis on seeing impermanence? In many places, in the discourses, the Buddha said that when we see that everything that is subject to arising, which is all of our experience, is also subject to passing away, that when we see this clearly, then we become disenchanted and disillusioned. Becoming disenchanted, we become dispassionate and through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When we see impermanence, we become disenchanted. Becoming disenchanted, we become dispassionate, and through dispassion, the mind is liberated. Now, we hear this, these words of liberating wisdom, And for many people, some serious doubts arise. Because in English, the words disenchanted, disillusioned, dispassionate, they have a pretty negative connotation. You know, these states don't sound all that appealing. So what is the Buddha talking about here? 
if we look a little more closely at the meaning of the words, we can understand their connection to freedom, not as an abstract idea, but actually in our present moment-to-moment experience. Becoming disenchanted means breaking the spell of enchantment. It means waking up to a fuller and more complete reality. You know, and it's the happy ending of so many great myths and fairy tales. The spell of enchantment is broken. Waking up to reality. We awaken from the sleep of our lives. And we can get a very immediate experience and feeling of this when we look carefully at how desire casts its spell on the mind. And it might be desire for some little things, or it might be a full-blown obsession about something. For the duration of that desire, we really have only one thing on our minds. You know, it's said that when a pickpocket meets a saint, all the pickpocket can see is the saint's pockets, if he or she has one. Being on retreat really provides a wonderful opportunity to see clearly and understand this whole process of the spell of enchantment and becoming disenchanted. Because on retreat, the opportunities for fulfilling our desires are somewhat limited. We don't have full sway. So, in the retreat, when a desire arises, see if you can really see and become mindful, become aware, investigate the feeling, the nature of that wanting mind, the compelling nature of the wanting. It might be a sexual fantasy. It might be a longing for someone. It might be an overwhelming desire for some food, something. And then, if you can, You know, you've noticed the desire, even if you don't catch it right in the beginning, but someplace in the middle, you're aware that it's there. Pay careful enough attention, if you can, to see the moment the desire leaves, because it eventually will. There's no one who has desire all the time. You know, it arises, and it's there for some time, and at a certain point, it leaves. Notice the feeling in the moment that the desire passes away. My experience has been always that it feels like it's being let out of the grip of something. It's all of a sudden, you know, this sense of relief. We wake up from the very seductive enchantment of wanting. So a simple everyday example of this, it's something which I call catalog consciousness. Do you know the experience of making the mistake of opening a catalog? (laughs) 
And almost immediately we fall under the spell, not only, not even of a particular thing, we fall under the spell of wanting to want. Now keep turning the page, maybe on the next page there's something I'll want. (laughs) And it's quite amazing how difficult it is to extricate the mind until we've looked through the whole catalog. And do you know the feeling when you can just put the damn thing down? (laughs) We become disenchanted. Do you see the connection to liberation? Likewise, disillusioned is not the same as being discouraged or being disappointed. Being disillusioned is a connection with what is true, free of illusion. We should all become disillusioned. That would be the greatest thing for our planet. And dispassionate, it doesn't mean indifference and it doesn't mean apathy. Dispassionate means a mind of great openness, a mind of great equanimity. It's free from the confines of wanting and grasping. It's through seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, as the Buddha said in many places, that the mind becomes disenchanted, disillusioned, dispassionate, and in that becomes free. So as Steve mentioned last night, as we begin to see the changing microparticles of experience, as our perception of change becomes more and more refined. I call it NPMs, which are noticings per minute. You know, in the beginning, maybe there are 10 NPMs, and then 15, and then 20, and then 60, and 100, and after a while, there are just so many noticings per minute. We're seeing the rapid change, the rapid arise and passing away of phenomena. And so we begin to see how the sense of self is simply an appearance arising out of this flow of very quickly changing phenomena. We're no longer living in the illusion of a separate self-stable existence. So one example of this, and again, Steve alluded to it last night, just imagine yourselves in a movie theater, you know, and you're absorbed in the story, and then in a moment of mindfulness, maybe, you look up and you see the beam of light being projected on the screen. And we realize that even on the level of the story, everything that we thought was happening is not happening at all. There's no one getting chased, no one getting killed, no one falling in love. It's just, and I'm not sure I'm using the right scientific term here, but I don't know, it's just streaming photons of light, you know, a light and color projected on the screen. This is a very different view of reality than the one we usually live in. And it's in this vein that the Buddha called 
this whole phenomenal world a magic show. And that's the, that's, that's the words he used. It's a magical show of appearances. And we begin to get a sense of that when we pay careful attention to the arising and passing away of phenomena. That's why it has such profound consequences. When we loosen our grip, when we loosen the grip on this sense of self through the awareness of impermanence, we can begin to get a very different understanding of the nature of our minds. And there's one Zen dialogue that I want to share tonight because it points very directly to the nature of the free mind. And this is, this is in the tradition of sudden awakening. So get ready. <laughs> and this is a dialogue between Bodhidharma and the second of the Zen ancestors uh, in China. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. Huika, H-U-I-K-E. Now, as you know, Bodhidharma brought supposedly brought Buddhism, Buddhadharma, from India to China, sat in a cave for many years, said nine years facing the wall. And Huika came, and he was a very sincere practitioner, suffering a lot. And he really wanted to find the end to suffering. And he was requesting over and over again for Bodhidharma to teach him. So he said, this is Huika, please teach me the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. And Bodhidharma said, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else. Huika, my mind is distressed. Please pacify it with your teachings. Okay, so as I continue the dialogue, I just need to give a little caution. There's a little bit of Zen wit in the dialogue. Don't miss your chance for sudden awakening <laughs> to respond on the level of the wit because it's actually pointing to something extremely profound. So hear the words in that vein on that level. Okay, so Huika says, my mind is distressed. Please pacify it with your teaching. So Bodhidharma says, Present me your mind, and I will pacify it. Huika said, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, I've pacified it. You know? It's so interesting. Here's, there's a direct pointing to the nature of the mind. We look for the mind. Where is it? There's nothing to find. As one great Tibetan master said, the not finding is the finding. The fact that it can't be found is the finding. So when we look at our own minds in this way, we look for the nature of mind, can't be found. It's already pacified.
So we may not always or even often be on this level of understanding, but it's good to just recognize the possibility here. Freedom is not something far off. Freedom is about understanding the nature of our minds, the nature of our experience right now. But even if we're not on the level of photons of light, and you know we're more often just in the conventional reality of our experience, you know, engaged with the world and all the ordinary experiences of it, still to the degree that we have seen and continue to see the arising and passing away, both the arising and passing away of phenomena, we don't often, we don't so often get caught in reactivity and suffering. When we see the impermanence again and again and again, it's possible then in a moment, just like Quika, to understand that the fundamental, empty nature of mind is already free. So, the very pragmatic question then, how can we practice and refine this liberating contemplation of impermanence? How do we do it? How do we contemplate the arising and passing away of phenomena? Now, we can be mindful of impermanence on many levels, both internally and externally. And sometimes it's in ways that are so ordinary that we simply overlook them. Just as some examples and some dramatic examples, both of change and the power of oblivion. We see it very dramatically with climate change. Climate changes, as we know. And sometimes it changes in very dramatic ways. And yet, clearly, there's a whole level of national consciousness that finds it hard to accept. You know, we see changes in nature, weather patterns, We see the evolution of species, the extinction of species, changes all around us. We see changes in society. You know, on a collective level, we can look at the rise and fall, the rise and pass away of whole civilizations. If you remember a little earlier in the talk, where the Buddha said, the perception of impermanence uproots the conceit, I am, This insight might also be very helpful on the national level. (laughs) You know, as a society, if we believe that our ascendance, our wealth, our power will always be there, it's like we're strengthening the national ego. And as we have seen, from that place, often respond in the world in very harmful and inappropriate ways. It's the same. It's the same process at work. You know, because as a culture, as a nation, as a political entity, we are not contemplating the impermanence of our civilization. 
understanding the truth of change, the inevitable rise and fall of cultures. We've seen it endlessly throughout history. The contemplation of that brings about a much greater sense of humility and compassion. On a more personal level in society, not just the rise and fall of cultures and civilizations, we see impermanence in the generations of people being born and dying. And it's very, very uh, noticeable or obvious uh, in New England as one walks through the New England woods because throughout many of the woods and forests of New England you see these miles of stone walls you know, and stone foundations of old houses where now just trees are growing up through them. And you can't help but think, first, of the enormous amount of work to clear the fields to make those walls, and there's miles and miles of them, and of the foundations and all the lives and histories of people who lived there, and now all that's left you know, are the crumbling stones of the foundation. It becomes so poignant. You know? And of course, we see the same, we can see the same level of change in this environment, too. So what histories, what life stories, you know, were lived out, and now what's left? The truth of impermanence is so clear when we are paying attention to it. We can see the changing nature of our relationships, you know, our work, and most intimately our, our bodies and minds. Now, none of this is new. You know, we've all heard this a lot. And it's very possible to acknowledge the truth of change, but to know it in a way that is somehow abstracted from our lives. It's like, there's nobody, I think, who would deny the truth of change. But are we actually living from that place of truth? We can abstract it as kind of a philosophic understanding. Or sometimes we even can feel it deeply with a kind of poetic sensibility. And there's a wonderful little poem by Ryokan, an 18th century great Zen hermit monk poet. Uh, he wrote, Late at night, listening to the winter rain, Recalling my youth, was it only a dream? Was I really young once? You know, it's this great feeling of recognition there. <laughs> and you know, so we can we can feel the truth of change, you know, from this poetic sensibility. But the sword of liberating wisdom, the sword that cuts through the very root of delusion and ignorance can also be very fierce. It's not always a nice poetic sensibility of you know, reflecting back on our youth and where is it now. So I want to read something to you. Most of you probably know of our teacher Deepama, who was this extraordinary woman. She died some years ago. 
Her life story is amazing. She was married at age, I think it was 14, um, which was the custom at that time. She was Bengali. She had a very happy marriage, but for many years, no children. And that was, that was a big thing in that culture. And after many, many years, she had first one child and then two more. And they were living, she and her family were living in Burma at the time. In very short succession, two of her children and her husband died. And she said, as she described it, she was just overcome with grief. She said she was basically bedridden for five years. She thought she was going to die from the grief of it. And then finally, one of her friends said, you know, you've really got to do something or you will die from this. And she ended up going to a monastery, meditation center. And within a very short time, like within a couple of weeks, she had attained high stages of realization. It's like her practice just, you know, high stages of awakening. She developed all the levels of concentration all the powers of mind that are talked about in the books. So, extraordinary woman. And this, if you're interested in reading about her, there is a book uh, called Deepama. And it's just stories of her life and the things she could do. So amazing. Just... I met her when she had moved back to India. Munindra was her teacher in Burma. And so through Munindraji, I met her You'd go to her room in Calcutta, small room down a dark alley, up four flights of you know, dark stairs. You go into the room, it was like filled with light. You know, and she would bless you. She would just run her hands over your head and shoulders. It was really getting blissed out for a while, just from the power of her metta you know, and her stillness and her peace. Okay, all of this is background to the fierceness of the sword of wisdom. This is from the book Deepama, and it's about a woman named Sudipti. So this is Sudipti relating the story. So Sudipti said that when my son died in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. Today you're, quoting Deepama, today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Your building is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property. This is my building. This car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours, Sudipti. Nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. That's at a whole other level. You know, and this is from somebody not spouting philosophy. This is from somebody who had been through it 
it's a very powerful teaching. This is what we have to see and understand on the deepest level of our being. What is so surprising, given that impermanence shows itself in so many ways, all the time, all around us, is that we still find it surprising. That's, that is the power of delusion. It is all around us, on every level, on the deepest levels. But somehow we count on things staying the same way, on staying stable. Or if they're going to change, at least they'll change the way we want them to. But it's not like that. So there's a little mantra that I have worked with in my practice that serves as a reminder to me. And the little mantra is, anything can happen anytime. Just anything can happen anytime. Now, sometimes people hear that and they feel, oh, that sounds depressing. But actually, as I use that, it's not depressing at all. It's exactly the opposite. It's like becoming disillusioned. It's a reconnection with what is true. Anything can happen anytime. And so I can let down the defenses. I don't have to build up these barriers out of fear. We can relax into the great truth of impermanence. This is how it is. We don't have to struggle with it. We don't have to fight with it. Just in a very simple way, how many times in your sitting, you know, in your practice here, you come in, maybe you have a great sitting, calm, concentrated, peaceful, the bell rings, you get up, I'll do some walk and come back and I'll just pick up from where I left off. How often does that not happen? You know, but then we think it's a mistake when it doesn't happen. When we're paying attention, we see that everything is disappearing and new things arising, not only every day or every hour, but every moment. New things, things are disappearing and new things are arising every moment. So if you can remember between now and the end of the talk, when you get up, you know, at the end of the talk, and you start walking outside, just pay attention to the rapid flow of changing experience. Just in the simple act of getting up and walking out, you will experience changing sensations in the body and changing visual forms and different sounds of other people moving. So many things will be arising and passing from the time you get up to the time you reach the door. What happens to each of these experiences? Do any of them last at all? The truth of this is so ordinary that we no longer pay attention to it. And that's where we miss the opportunity to actually free our minds.
In one discourse, the Buddha makes a distinction between the establishment of mindfulness, which is being aware of what's arising, and the development of mindfulness. Okay, so he's making a distinction here. The establishment of mindfulness is being aware of what's arising. The development of mindfulness, which is when the momentum of awareness gets stronger through continuity, is when the emphasis shifts from what it is that's happening to the seeing of the process of change. We go from content to process. So the mindfulness starts focusing not so much on what it is that's happening, but it starts focusing on the flow of change itself. So we begin to see experience on increasingly microscopic, subtle levels. We see that whatever arises on any level of perception is just passing away. It's a passing show. It's like the fast-flowing current of a stream or water over a waterfall. It's that fast. But unless we develop the mindfulness, we don't see it. The Buddha made, among many other statements, one very remarkable one to me. He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the rapid rise and fall of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. That's a radical statement. What does that say about everything we value in our lives? You know, and put so much energy into. He said, it's better to live a single day <clears throat> to see the rapid rise and passing away of phenomena than a hundred years, no matter what else we're doing, and not seeing that. It points very directly to the liberating power of seeing this truth of change. Because the more clearly and repeatedly we tune in, we perceive impermanence, the changing nature of all phenomena, it reorients our minds. It reorients our minds towards care and loving kindness rather than attachment. Because we see the futility of attachment. It reorients our mind towards letting go rather than clinging. Seeing the truth of change reorients our minds towards freedom. And this is not just, <coughs> excuse me, this is not just for people who are renunciates. It's not just for monks or nuns or people living off, you know, in some hermit. On one occasion, a layman named Mahanama approached the Buddha and he asked, In what way, venerable sir, is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? Okay, so this could be us asking the Buddha. In what way is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? And the Buddha replied, Mahanama, 
A lay follower is wise, possessing wisdom, when the mind is directed to arising and passing away. This is a wisdom that is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. In this way, a lay follower is accomplished in wisdom. He could not be saying it more plainly. We develop mindfulness, we cultivate it, we develop it as the platform for wisdom. And wisdom is this investigation into the impermanent, changing nature of whatever's arising. Seeing the arising, seeing the passing away, seeing both the arising and passing away. So it's simple. This is not difficult to understand. This is our practice. Cultivating this understanding, cultivating this wisdom. So I'd like to close with a teaching from an abbess of a Zen monastery in Japan. Her name was Tejitsu. And this is a book uh, called Women of the Way, Discovering 2,500 Years of Buddhist Wisdom. So this was the teachings of this abbess. Tejitsu saw that arisings, phenomena, arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. You know, that's so beautifully expresses our practice. She just saw the arising and passing of all appearances. She saw the arising and passing of the knowing of experience. So there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on at all, no one leaning. And this beautiful expression, she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. So just now apply the teachings with whatever it is that's arising in your experience. Pay attention to its arising, its abiding, its passing away.
Could be a breath, a sound, a sensation, a thought. Opening the clenched fist in the mind. Settling back into the awareness of the flow of changing phenomena. Do you remember your assignment? Just as you stand up and go to the door, just be aware of the rapidity of changing experience. Thank you. This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 27, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.